Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Michelle O'Connell is dead. Shot the night she was planning on moving out of her boyfriend's house, who was a deputy sheriff. I work with y'all. Get someone here now. Her boyfriend, Jeremy Banks, was never a suspect, and he never really will be, as long as Sheriff David Shore has anything to say about it. This guy right here came so damn close to being charged with homicide, it's scary. Almost 10 years later, a private citizen investigating Michelle's death is now a victim of a brutal murder. He said the reason he was trying to help, if what happened to Michelle happened to him, he'd want somebody fighting for him. What was your first thought when you heard that it might have been Eli? Retaliation for protected activity and investigating the case. He was very near close to having a conclusion to the multiple investigations that he commissioned, and he'd spent tens of thousands of dollars. All the evidence he collected is gone and is in the hands of law enforcement. Eli Washtock is a mystery to us. He didn't have any social media profiles, virtually no digital footprint. As far as we know, Eli Washtock was a recluse, completely withdrawn from society. He didn't even have any friends in St. Augustine, at least none that we know of. But someone out there has to know something about Eli Washtock. So we did some digging, and pretty soon we found Nick Utek, Eli Washtock's high school friend. So we gave him a call. So what, what kind of things did you guys do in high school? Went out and caused trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some small town boys. <laughs> And what what was uh, what was Craig like in high school? Pretty much just a laid back dude. I mean, you know, he played hockey most most of his school career, and you know, was just in the cars and stuff like that, and do his body work and all that. Um, you know, good friend, loyal dude. You know, a lot of our time was spent making a little rider truck for a while, and you know, he was into his muscle cars. Nick grew up with Eli in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, sixty miles north of Madison. And even though Eli eventually moved to St. Augustine, Florida, they always stayed in touch. And do you know why he moved down there? Change, something different. Did he talk to you about looking into the Michelle O'Connell death investigation? Nope, nope, really? nothing about it. It kind of sounds like nobody knew he was doing that besides him. <laughs> John, you spoke with both Nick and his brother, Matt. Both of these guys grew up with Eli. How come he didn't tell him about this case? Both Nick and his brother Matt told me that Eli never mentioned anything about his obsession with the Michelle O'Connell case. In fact, they said he never really ever worked a criminal investigation that they knew of. You have a guy that is living his life, you know, he's got a job or he did have a job and he's things are going along and then he kind of, I don't know if he put a stop to his life, but he spent a, a good amount of money and a lot of time devoted to this case. You know, what makes a guy who's just kind of living his life stop that to pursue this case? A a woman he never met. Um, You know, honestly, your guess is as good as mine. I don't get it. I don't know why, you know, especially when it got to the point where 
you have a feeling some shit could happen, so you got your kid living in the condo below you, like, why the hell wouldn't you just pack your shit and came back up to Wisconsin? You know, you could have still carried on your investigation from up here, but, I mean, Christ, at least you would have had some distance. Or even that said, hey, kid, you got to go stay at your mom for a little while. Shit's getting hairy around here. I don't know what's going to happen. So they didn't know that Eli was working on the Michelle O'Connell case, but did they know how paranoid Eli was during his final days? Matt, Nick's brother, told me that Eli never mentioned anyone ever threatening him. In fact, they were making plans to get together soon. Over the years, me and my daughter and ex-wife, you know, we'd go on spring break. I'd come down and we'd stay with them at World Golf Village there. We're planning on coming down in April. But that trip never happened. Sometime between the evening of January 30th and the morning of January 31st, Matt and Nick's childhood friend Eli Washtock died. Here's Nick Utek again. Boston, I get a message from his mom like, hey, did you hear about Craig? Keep in mind, his childhood friends still refer to Eli as Craig, Eli Washtock's birth name. So and then she told me like, yeah, Craig's, Craig's dead. When you heard that, what were your thoughts as far as what may have happened? Yeah, he asked me. There, there's no doubt in my mind that this it's all tied together somehow. Because dude, he he was a quiet guy. He he wasn't into drugs or gambling or none of that shit. The only thing he was doing with his life was investigating this murder, suicide, whatever you want to call it. That's obviously so much controversy on it. And all of a sudden, boom! You know, supposedly he's turned up some good stuff, and now he's gone. But then Nick said something that we never really considered. Honestly, I was surprised he ruled it a murder. I was, I was just waiting for him to say it was a suicide again, so it just get all washed away. Yeah, so I mean, the fact that it was actually ruled a homicide leaves some hope there, but yet it's like they ruled it a homicide and boom, investigation's over. Yeah, and it's, you bring up a good point because if they dis, if they determine it a homicide, the case is still open. They don't have to disclose any of the information. But if they called it a suicide and they closed the case, then all that information could be get uh, the public could get a hold of it. So in theory, this case could stay open indefinitely, and we, the public, will never know exactly what occurred inside that condo, right? Exactly. Yeah, this case is very frustrating, and it just has not been looked into the way it should yet. Uh, and no, so not, not at all. Yeah, that's what we're attempting to do. It's a, it's a tough uphill battle because obviously uh, the people in Florida, the authorities, they don't want us to know anything. Why were the authorities so confident that this was a homicide and not a suicide? That's a great question. And what Nick told me next made that crystal clear. I've seen the photos from his condo, you know, so I've seen all the photos from, you know, basically crime scene photos seeing the blood stand on the fucking floor, you know? Yeah, it, it just don't make no sense. Well, so. so talk to me about what you saw. I mean, multiple gun gun holes throughout his condo. I mean, multiple bullet holes. Was he was he killed in the living room or in his bedroom? Or? I believe it was his bedroom. What are, so you mentioned the, the bullet holes in the wall. You, so like you think like somebody that fired at him, some of those shots missed? Is that what you think happened? Or? Honestly, I mean, there, there was mul- multiple shots fired. That's all I know. Wow. We need to get our hands on those photos. Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we don't have access to any official information about Eli Washtock's crime scene. 
everything is locked down because it's still considered an active homicide investigation. It's been more than a year now. Detectives are not responding to us, and the case has gone cold. It seems to me that there really isn't an appetite to solve this case. We haven't seen any movement, and the little information that's been released is conflicting and confusing. We're going to continue to look into Eli Washtock's crime scene in future episodes. But for now, there's one crime scene that has plenty of evidence for us to cover, and that involves the Michelle O'Connell case. Creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative true crime podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. In order to understand how Michelle ended up dead in Jeremy Banks' bedroom, we have to know the events that took place earlier that night. This is exactly where Eli Washtock would have started his investigation. Right here? Oh, right here? No, no, the next one. Oh, next. That's where the rock and roll buses go. Right here. Right here. This is Ed Slavin. He's a local blogger and St. Augustine government watchdog, showing us around St. Augustine Amphitheater. This is the concert venue where Michelle and Jeremy attended the night she died. There's a security guard here. We could maybe ask at the box office for permission. I could walk you back into the amphitheater if they'll allow us in there and show you the approximate location where Michelle and uh, Jeremy sat. Yeah, I mean, if we can get in there, that'd be great. This outdoor venue seats about 4,000 people. Its tagline is, big acts, small venue. Michelle, Jeremy, her brother Scott, and two of their friends Andrew Garris and Crystal Saccato had tickets to attend a concert to see the band Paramore. Both Andrew Garris and Crystal Saccato described Michelle as disconnected. They both felt tension between Jeremy and Michelle while they were at the concert. John, we actually have a few pictures from that concert. Yeah, someone snapped a picture of Michelle and Jeremy. Michelle's face is partially cut out of the frame, but she is showing a big smile. She's holding a plastic cup. Her hair is shoulder length and perfectly brushed. Jeremy Banks is wearing a tight, flannel, long sleeve shirt and a baseball cap turned backwards. He doesn't look happy at all. What does this picture tell us about their mood that night? Michelle may have been better than Jeremy at concealing her emotions, but this photo captured a moment in time. It's eerie. The picture shows Michelle smiling and Jeremy pissed just hours before Michelle's death. The text messages paint a more confusing picture. At one point, Michelle texted her friend Mindy Fox, quote, I'm stressed out, unquote. She also texted some fairly ominous texts to her brother and sister, asking them to take care of her daughter no matter what happens. 
These texts are quite alarming and certainly point to a crisis and a sense of danger or impending doom. However, the problem is that both her committing suicide and Jeremy killing her could potentially lead to her having these fears within a couple hours of her death. We're going to go back and revisit these text messages, but for now, let's get back to the concert. The show is about to start. The sun is fading behind the trees and the lights illuminate the stage. Whatever tension Jeremy and Michelle are feeling tonight will be drowned out by the heavy bass coming from the stage. At approximately 10 p.m., the concert ends. Jeremy and Michelle leave the amphitheater and walk to their car. They're parked a few blocks away at a local surf shop called The Surf Station. It's an eight-minute walk. It's now about 10.20, maybe 10.30 p.m. Michelle drives Jeremy back to the house, which is another 20 minutes away. So now it's around 10.40. Crystal and Andrew arrive at about the same time. 40 minutes from now, Jeremy Banks will dial 911 and report that his girlfriend shot herself. We haven't been able to reach Crystal or Andrew for an interview. However, we do have their written affidavits. Here's what Crystal wrote, and I quote, We all went to grab a beer where Jeremy proceeded to say, Michelle and I are fighting again. She asked for his keys to leave, but then I took them away and handed them to Jeremy. I thought Michelle was too drunk to drive. Once the concert was over, we met at Jeremy's house where he told us that Michelle wanted us to leave. We stayed per Jeremy's instruction, and then she quotes, in case she gets crazy or something happens, unquote. When they arrive at Jeremy's house, Crystal reported to the police that they stayed for about 45 minutes, which is impossible because this means they would have been there when the fatal shot was fired. But that's okay because people are notorious for distorting time. What else did we learn from their witness report? According to Andrew Garris, the couple fought about small things while at the concert. He also wrote that Michelle was packing up her things to leave. In the end, Crystal indicated that Jeremy told them he and Michelle would be fine, and so the couple left. The only person who really knows what happened to Michelle that night is Jeremy Banks. He's the only witness. We've heard from their friends who were there the moments before she died. Now let's hear from someone who was there at the scene, moments after Jeremy made that infamous 911 call. This is former St. John's County Deputy Deborah Maynard. I didn't know Michelle, but it sure as hell changed my life. She was one of the first officers to respond to the scene. So take me to September 2nd, 2010, the night of Michelle O'Connell's death. We were just sitting there having a cup of coffee and the alert tone came out, shots fired. They gave the radio number of Jeremy Banks, which I recognized just because I had worked with him other places and I knew his badge number. Deborah and the other officers jumped in their patrol car and headed to Jeremy's house as fast as they could. Pulled up pretty much all at the same time, within seconds of each other, ran in the house. So was there anyone outside when you got there? No, we kind of looked at each other. I mean, we all got out of our cars and looked at each other and went in the same door. Was it loud or quiet outside, if you remember? Quiet. So were you going into this house thinking that this was a possibly a friendly situation or like that something had already happened or were you thinking that you could be shot at? I know none of us drew our guns, so we, based on bits of information that they were putting over the radio, it seemed to be that it was just going to be one of our workers 
and the girlfriend shot herself. So we didn't think we would be going into a hostile environment. Deborah walks in through the front door of the one-story house and looks around. The house is a mess. There's stuff everywhere. To the right, there is a living room. To the left is a kitchen area. And beyond the kitchen at the far left corner of the house is the master bedroom. And as I came around the corner of the bar, I saw deep jeans. Jeremy was crouched down probably two, three feet away from Michelle. He was just crouching, holding a phone, the house phone. Well, give me just kind of your initial reaction when you saw him or reacted to well, him. Well, I was kind of puzzled that, you know, if he had called, if it's your girlfriend and, and we're cops and we're first responders and she's bleeding or hasn't, you know, self-inflicted, as you have said, why aren't you trying life-saving, you know? But he was just, he wasn't saying anything. He was just crouched and just staring. It wasn't immediately clear the full extent of Michelle's injuries, but she had been shot with a 45 caliber H&K pistol through her mouth, severing her spinal cord. It was Deputy Jeremy Banks' duty-issued firearm. Notwithstanding the severity of her injuries, Deborah says her sergeant picked up Michelle's wrist and said, I've got a pulse. And then things started moving real quick. My sergeant looks at me and he says, get him out of here. Deborah Maynard says that the moment they found the pulse, Jeremy turned angry. I said, come on, Jeremy. And as he gets up, his demeanor changed immediately. When Mark said, I've got a pulse, Jeremy's whole thing, his whole demeanor changes. So I... He had to step over Michelle's body. I went to take him by the arm and walk him out. And as we get out the front door, he swings his elbow back toward me and almost hit me in the face, you know, to like get away from me. I smelled the alcohol on him and he starts pacing out in the driveway and growling. I, that's all I can say. He sounds like he's growling. He was angry. He just was like, ah. And he took his fist and he pounded my sergeant Scarlett sitting there. And I'm like, uh, okay. So I call another deputy, Les. I call Les over to come help me calm him down. So when you described his demeanor changing, it changed from what to what? Almost like comatose, like he was in shock, dead silent, nothing when we got there. Absolutely nothing. And I'm like, ooh, he's really upset. I mean, that's all I could think. But he wasn't crying. He wasn't trying to help her. He wasn't holding her. I thought that was weird. But everybody responds differently, so. But as soon as Mark said, I've got a pulse, things changed, started moving real quick. And Jeremy just immediately, like I flipped the switch on, he started getting very upset and angry. When you came upon the scene and then you walked out with Jeremy, what else did you notice about him? He was very drunk. I noticed he, uh, though I smelled alcohol, I smelled like, okay, so you smell like you just took a shower. I reported that. I thought, you know, okay, well, maybe a guy wouldn't notice that, but a woman would notice how a guy smells. I, I thought he was clean, that he smelled like he had showered, but he had been drinking. 
Did you, so you smelled like a soap or something like that? Yeah, just a body wash, a body soap. Did you ask him any questions? No, he he was too busy pushing, pounding, casing, I mean, just growling. Deborah says that the whole night was pretty unusual. I thought it was kind of weird. Like, you guys aren't really doing much here. I mean, come on, he he was over there carrying on with his sergeant and... At one point, it looked like he was laughing, having a good time over there. And I just was like, it's really weird how he acted that night. Really, really, really weird. Eventually, the paramedics arrived. And I thought, oh, I wonder if there's a kid here. So I went to start looking through the house, see if anyone else was there. And as I did, I walked past the couch in the living room. And I thought, what in the world? I pulled back the blanket on the couch, and there's all these suitcases. So I thought... Why in the world are all these suitcases got a blanket over them? Note to self, I thought that was really strange. I checked the other bedroom, the bathroom, and I didn't find anyone else. Why would there be a blanket placed over a suitcase? Who placed the blanket over the suitcase, and when did that occur? There were many unusual things about this call. First of all, it's not every day that officers have to respond to a call from one of their own. But putting aside the obvious conflicts of interest, Usually when police are called to a scene, they have to document the who, what, when, where, and whys. It's called an incident report. You write down what you see. Did you write a report on this? I did a supplement. If you are a primary on the scene, you write the report. I was not the first person through the door. But what got me was the fact that they assigned the report to be written by Wes Grizzard. Now, Wes, yes, though he was on scene, never went in that house. And I thought, why the hell are you writing this report? He said, I was ordered to. I said, well, how can you write about something you never saw? He says, Deb, I I, I don't know. So he did the primary. And next thing I knew, that one-page report, it was closed and signed off on as a suicide. So according to Deborah, the guy who wrote the report never even stepped foot in the house. The original report was no more than a page long. A week later, when Deborah went to do her supplementary report? Within a few weeks, I'm noticing you can't even get access to the report. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. Then you go type in Michelle O'Connell's name, and she doesn't exist, which was even more weird to me. Deborah Maynard mentioned the scent of alcohol in her supplemental report. However... She never did mention the fresh shower smell until much later. So stuff was happening after, within, you know, a month, say about a month afterwards. And I'm thinking, I never knew what was going on at that point in time. And that's when I started going up to the office and asking questions. So I had asked Angie, I said, by the way, I said, did you, when you guys processed that scene, did you check the other bathroom? Did you pull any traps? Did you look and see if there was any residue? And you know what the response was? Oh, there was another bathroom? I said, you got to be kidding me. What? So they didn't check for blood in any of the showers? They said they checked the bathroom off where we found Michelle. They said they checked that one. I said, well, there were two bathrooms. Why didn't you check the other one? It was just dropped from the get-go. I mean, you hear the word suicide, and everybody's throwing it around because Jeremy's yelling suicide. So what, we're just going to take his word for it? 
Javier and I met up with Deborah Maynard during our trip to St. Augustine, Florida. We wanted to learn more about what happened at the scene. What Deborah described that night sounded like sloppy police work. It's the way Jeremy set the stage for us. He told our dispatcher that my girlfriend shot herself. And we were like, whoa, let's, you know, your first thought is I work with this guy. So they set the stage for you that we're gonna, you know, come down and help you out, buddy. But you get there and there's just too much that didn't, didn't play out right. When you enter a scene and the family member or a loved one is they're there. They're begging for help. And they're begging for help, but how do they treat the person? They're usually holding them. Do something, help me. Jeremy was on his knees, crouched over her, wasn't he, when, when you Not guys- Not when I got there, nope. He was squatting and his back against the door to the, to the master bathroom. He wasn't near her. He was just sitting there and had his phone in his hand. There's something else that Deborah can't reconcile. The police found muscle relaxers and painkillers in Michelle's purse and pocket. But Deborah says she doesn't remember seeing that. To this day, to this day, and I would swear on it, if, you, if I replay looking at Michelle, she was so tiny, and those jeans she had on were so tight, yet they say they found all these pills in her pocket. And I'm like, I never remember seeing that bulge of pills in her pocket. I just don't. Because that's a lot of pills. Why wouldn't I have seen those in her in her pocket? I, I've replayed that over and over and over. And I've even looked at a picture and I'm like, where are those pills? I don't see them in her pocket. I, I just never saw them. Several officers later wrote supplemental reports and they recalled seeing pills in Michelle's pocket. Maybe Deborah remembered it wrong. Who knows? The bottom line is that Michelle's toxicology report was clear. And those pills didn't belong to her. They were prescribed to Jeremy. Deborah Maynard no longer works for St. John's Sheriff's Office. She was involved in a separate incident involving a family member that put her at odds with David Shore. Essentially, she witnessed two St. John's County Sheriff's detectives harassing her nephew. Deborah refused to go along with the detective's story, so she got in trouble for pulling up the case files. According to Deborah Maynard, this didn't sit well with Sheriff Shore. She says he told her, you, you shouldn't have used the computer. I'm not asking you to lie, but if you'll say I don't recall, you can keep your job. Hello, you are asking me to lie, and I do recall. So he fires me on the spot, terminates me. The case that caused Deborah Maynard to lose her job has nothing to do with the Michelle O'Connell case. However, there's a lot we can learn from it. Maybe Deborah is telling us all this because she has an axe to grind. Maybe. Or perhaps she has nothing to lose and she's free to speak her mind. And it's, it's not right. It's not right that you're told to do the wrong thing as a cop. It's not right that you embrace that because you like your job. But it is what it is. I don't run and look the other way. I've never been that person and I'm not about to start. This family's been through hell. In 2016, almost six years after Michelle O'Connell's death, Deborah Maynard ran against David Shore for sheriff of St. John's County. It always goes back to number one, who's in charge. They set that tone. They set what's permissible. They, they set what gets brushed under the table. They, they set what I don't see. And they promote, that's a good old boy. You did what I told you to do. If you're one of the good ones, you don't go far. How much power does the sheriff have? The sheriff answers to nobody. 
You can go through an ethics commission out in Tallahassee and make a complaint. It's so amazing the power they have. No one questions his authority, no one. And there needs to be checks and balances for that. It doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. So I saw it from the inside and I was totally blown away that this truly is how it is here. Next time on Criminal Conduct. Jeremy and Michelle's relationship ended in tragedy, but it wasn't always so volatile. They started hanging out a lot. Like, it got to a point where we, like, I was even saying, I was like, hey, man. I was like, slow down. You know what I mean? Because you guys were hanging out all, they were hanging out all the time. So how did this relationship turn violent? She would just say, I need to get out of this situation with Jeremy. And she just didn't have enough time. Michelle O'Connell wasn't the only one with a complicated relationship. So, Javier, check this out. It says... Eli Washtock was in a relationship with a woman named Katrina Van Knocker, though it doesn't look like they were married. It appears Eli Washtock was involved in a domestic incident case of his own. That's next time on Criminal Conduct. Thanks to our executive producer, AdvertiseCast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary-style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. A new episode of Criminal Conduct is out next week. You meet someone online and there's this instant connection. It's amazing how much the two of you just seem to click. They live somewhere far away and there's some plausible reason they can't travel to meet you. They tell you they're in love with you and you feel optimistic for the first time in a long time. They have a successful career yet somehow they need money from you to solve a short-term problem, always with the promise of paying you back. Time goes on and they need more money more urgently. You've started to see the cracks and begin to wonder whether they've been lying this whole time. All of a sudden it hits you. You've been scammed. Fool Me Twice is the story of my mother, Jules Hannaford, a woman who was drawn into the dangerous world of sweetheart scams. After a trip overseas to meet a stranger, a dangerous altercation in a Manchester hotel room, and thousands of pounds lost for good. She's here to tell her story. Fool Me Twice, a true crime podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Oscast Network, and anywhere you listen to your podcasts.
Creative Babble.